The following podcast is brought to you by Astro Panda Productions. For more information or to find other great shows, visit astropandaproductions.com or visit the Astro Panda Productions page on blogtalkradio.com. Welcome back to Geekish Cast, episode number 187, Penny Palabras with writer, director, producer, Ken Carlson. Hey everybody, thank you for joining us again, this is Jeremy. Uh, our episodes are going out about every two weeks now as I am slowing down and refocusing the show from more interview-based to more uh, talking about independent media itself. We're going to be doing a lot of independent horror films and talking about them, reviewing them, doing a good, bad, and the ugly, and moving on from there, but... Rounding out as we go into that mode of the show, we're going to finish up the last couple of interviews we had scheduled, and we are going to introduce Ken Carlson, creator of Dead Drift, and also the writer and producer behind Penny Palabras, both of which now are, are available on Amazon Prime. So listen to a commercial, help us pay our bills, and when we come back, we'll meet Ken. Thank you for listening to our sponsors, and now with no further ado, here is the creator of last year's favorite Christmas card, Ken Carlson. Hey, howdy. How's it going, man? Doing good. How are you, Ken? Excellent. I am doing well, Jeremy. Uh, would you real quick explain to us your Yuletide card from last year? Oh, my goodness. Last year's was uh, kind of the the Ragnarok theme, right? Yes, it was. Yeah. Okay, so um, my wife and I do a, do a crazy Christmas card every year. Uh, usually incorporates our dog. Um, we had an X-Men themed one where I was Professor Xavier and my wife was uh, uh, Jean Grey. And then uh, we had a Fallout 4 themed one where we were in vault suits and whatnot. And then uh, so this last year I, I had this idea that I wanted to do one where because uh, we got this new dog and she's kind of a puppy and she's a Jack Russell. So she's uh, she's just an absolute maniac. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought it would be fun if in our Christmas card I was Odin, uh, my wife was Frigg, Odin's wife, and then our dog was Fenrir the wolf swallowing the sun. Um, and that's that's the the Christmas card. Yes, it was the coolest Christmas card I received last year. I do have to say that. Nice. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. So, Ken, let's talk a little bit. we got to probably catch people up. You've been on our show a few times to discuss a few different things, Star Wars, your uh, your web series, Dead Drift, which everybody can check out now on Amazon at tinyurl.com slash deaddrift. Um, so how did you get into filmmaking? What was your interest? Uh, you know, I've just always really been interested in in trying to tell stories, and they don't always have to be lofty, you know, art laced studies of of the human experience. Sometimes, just good action, uh, fun popcorn movies are great too. You know, honestly, it was probably really the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles more than anything else that that kind of pulled me into this world, uh, comic books and uh, making movies. So I think my earliest memories are of of filmmaking are of creating stop motion. Uh, movies with uh, my Ninja Turtle toys. That's still pretty amazing. And also something that kind of is definitely set in our times because you couldn't have done that in the 70s. 
First off, because the Ninja Turtles didn't exist, but also because the home <laughs> movie technology wasn't there. Right, yeah. I was using a VHS-C uh, camera for that, which I don't know if you if you remember the VHS-C, but it was the one that had this tiny little VHS tape, kind of the size of an audio cassette tape, uh, that fit in the camera. And then when you wanted to watch it in a VCR, you put it in this adapter that adapted that tiny tape out to the size of a regular VHS tape. And uh, so that's what I was shooting on. Crazy, crazy technology. It was like a transformer cassette tape. Yeah, I, I kind of remember those. I didn't own one, but I definitely had friends whose families had them. And yeah, it was like a little boot adapter that you put in there to get it to fit into a regular VCR. Right. It was neat to actually kind of watch the, the mechanism at play when you inserted the tape. Yeah, that's kind of wild. Uh, yeah, so filmmaking, we were discussing this a little bit beforehand. Uh, the, bar to, the bar to entry is much lower which has created an environment of mixed blessings, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, the good thing about not having to pay film costs. You know, the good thing about the ubiquity of, of high-quality DSLR cameras is that now everybody can make films. And also the bad thing about low-cost DSLRs is that now everybody can make films. Yeah, it's the same sentence covers both situations. Exactly. And and since I know you're a Mutant Ninja Trolls fan, you know, I did uh, interview Kevin Eastman once on the show, right? Nice, man. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. He's a cool Heck guy. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> that but I was just me showing off, so there's no need to focus <laughs> on that. So just dropping games. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So your last project that was released was uh, Penny Palabras. Yes. It's a little different than Dead Drift in that there were no giant purple boobies in this one. Uh Penny Palabras is very different than Dead Drift. So why don't you give us a little rundown on Penny Palabras? Where did it come from? How did you get involved? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, Penny Palabras, the movie that we've made, is kind of a story of this young woman uh, in high school who gets mixed up with kind of black magic in over her head and then ends up being haunted by these really kind of wicked, evil, uh, supernatural entities all the while, she's really just trying to reconnect with her estranged father. So it's it's kind of a, a dark, uh, almost character study-esque look at, at family and, and fear. Uh, and it started as a graphic novel by author James Willard and artist Patrick Beavers. And uh, James Willard had done a lot of the music for Dead Drift, so uh, he approached me about adapting Penny Palabras into a into a movie and I, w I looked at it and I was like yeah this would be exciting this would be fun this would be a challenge to to try and tell this story and uh so we we set forth and we adapted the comics into a screenplay and then we shot the movie last year in 2017 and it just came out on Amazon probably uh last month so your straw man character in here is one of the demons, probably the primary demon of the story or, or creature in the story. Yeah. Is actually somewhat terrifying. <clears throat> well, that's good, man. I'm yeah. glad to hear it. How, how hard was it to affect that character on screen? Uh, there was, there was a lot involved with creating that character and kind of first and foremost was the creation of the mask. Um, that, that the actor Bill Reed, Bill Reed Jr. is the actor that uh, plays the straw man, and he's phenomenal. He's a local actor here in the in the Seattle area. He's really good. Um, and James McEwen, a friend of ours who does a lot of behind-the-scenes special effects and whatnot, he handcrafted this mask out of essentially just layering sticks over the top of a paintball mask 
and then adding the hair and whatnot and the glowing eyes. And then in post-production, we kind of doubled up Bill's voice to, to give it kind of an echoey, otherworldly feel to it. And then added this smoky, hazy, shadowy effect because we wanted him to seem kind of ethereal. Like, you know, one second he's there, the next second he's not. You never know uh, if he's behind you or, or then, you know, he's gone. Uh, I think the voice plays into it a lot. Um, and so that's that's really Bill. It comes down to his performance. And his audition was we had several people auditioning for that role, but he came in and everybody previous to that had been sitting. And the first thing he says to us is he's like, guys, do you mind if I stand? And we're like, yeah, okay, totally stand. And he did his audition from the sides that we had sent him, and he absolutely stole it. He he came to win that part. He was not uh, he was not fucking around. He wanted that part, and it was unanimous. And we gave him the part, and no regrets. He did great. You know the guy who auditioned and got the role for Michael Myers in uh, Halloween Two. What he did was he grabbed the de- the mask off of somebody's desk put it on and then walked into, I think it was the director's office and then just stood there and stared at him for three minutes. <laughs> nice. That was his audition. And yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, not being a filmmaker, I, I couldn't tell you for sure, but I've definitely talked to enough that sometimes the energy that somebody brings to a role seems to carry as much as their delivery. Absolutely. Energy presence is huge. Yeah. Um, and then that's one of the dilemmas of filmmaking, I think, is that that presence that you feel in person sometimes is difficult to translate to a two dimensional screen. Um, so that is one of the challenges of filmmaking is to try and figure out a way to translate that presence so that viewers can see it. And, uh, you know, hopefully we don't fuck it up somehow, but that's well, that's the goal. Yeah, but I mean, that's, you know. <laughs> Something's getting fucked up no matter what. Right. <laughs> that is that is a fact. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But one of the things I liked about the straw man was the simplicity of the character. Uh, his mask, you know. There's nothing too exotic or esoteric, but it's inscrutable. There's no emotion to read, and the voice is very, like you said, ethereal. It was almost a Freddy Krueger-like... Mm, it was almost a, a Freddy Krueger-like fear that was instilled or, or style of scaring somebody without as many shitty one-liners. Right. No, that's nice. That's good to hear. I think he's, he's essentially supposed to be obsession personified into an evil spirit. Um, I think that was the goal of, of James in the comic. And I think that was kind of our goal in, in the movie and the character Penny, she's kind of like, you know, I think if I woke up and there was this, this dude, there that looked like the straw man i would i would just freak out absolutely and you know go grab a shotgun or something if i was you know had the presence of mind to do so but she's essentially been dealing with him for so long that she's almost not quite but almost just bored with him Mm -hmm. and and what i was gonna say and I, i didn't mean to cut off your thought there penny has been dealing with spectacular circumstances it would appear from what i have seen at least a chunk of her life to the point where having a ghost come and sit by her doesn't even phase her. Right. Exactly. Uh, Pe- Penny can see ghosts as well. And there's, you know, if you read the comic, there's more that goes into that, how she, she talks about how she's learned to avoid emergency rooms and old folks homes and stuff like that. And actually I think we go into that in the, uh, the vlog uh, web series prequel to the movie. Uh, she, she talks about how, She's learned to avoid places where there might be recently deceased people, 
not because she's scared of the ghosts, but because whenever she encounters them, they realize that she can see them and they want to talk to her and she doesn't want to talk to them. So she just avoids them. Yeah. It reminds me of a non-jaded teenage John Constantine is what I think of. I don't I assume you know who that is. I absolutely know who that is. Yeah. Um, One of the greatest comic book characters created in the last 35 years. Man, I, I love Constantine. I've read I, I've read a lot of the books. I don't know if I could say I've read most of them, but uh, and kind of little segue tangent. But that the TV series that was out a few years back, mm-hmm. um, it started pretty slow, but I think by the end it it was pretty kick ass, and I was really disappointed that it didn't get picked up again. Well, you know, he's coming back as a season. That actor playing John Constantine, John Constantine, is coming back as a character on the next season of DC's uh, Legends. Okay, interesting. And I, yeah. uh, my wife watches The Arrow, but I don't watch The Arrow. I think it's too kind of teen soap opera for me. But uh, there was a couple episodes that, that that actor was playing Constantine in, and I watched those specifically because I, I just really love that guy as Constantine. Yeah, yeah. So he was in a couple episodes this season. They'd use him here or there. And then next season he'll be back full time as a character on Legends of Tomorrow. That's awesome. Yeah, and they've used him in the animated movies. DC's used him as John Constantine in the animated movies. Very cool. Yeah, no, that guy that guy nailed it. I, I really love his Constantine. Yeah, he looks like he's supposed to look. He looks like a little low-rent sting. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and even... I think the, the first few episodes of that show, I felt like he was trying too hard to be edgy, and they didn't really get it, or he didn't get it or something, but I don't know. But as the series went on, I thought that he really came into the role, and the, the showrunners really started to, like, get it. But I think it was probably because their ratings were suffering, so they were just like, fuck it, let's just do this. Yeah. And well, that's when it good. Yeah, and one of the other things is on Legends of Tomorrow, he's a chain-smoking bisexual the way he's supposed to be. Right. Yeah, so it was something like I'm sure they couldn't do on, well, <clears throat> probably the biggest problem was they tried to put it on what, actual CBS or NBC or whoever it was that carried it. Right. And that's not a character for a primetime show. No, it's not. Yeah, you got to be on a cable channel or some small backwoods to get away with what you got to do with him. It was one of the fascinating things I noticed about the smoking thing, because, you know, that's that's a very uh, integral part and a part of that character. It's it's super important that that character smokes. Um, And in the first couple episodes, they would always show him never with the cigarette in his mouth. He would always just be they'd come back from a commercial and he'd flick the cigarette butt onto the ground. Or he'd pull a cigarette pack out and he'd get ready to light it and then it would cut to a different scene. But as the series went on, I think they got a little more brave about showing him actually engaging in the act of smoking, even though that's you know kind of verboten. But I, yeah. I definitely liked the way it seemed that the whole show really came into its stride and got more brave and ballsy about what they were doing. Uh, but then it was by then it was too late. Yeah. Well, the smoking thing's kind of weird. So, you know, I quit smoking five years ago and then I kind of picked it up again after my dad died this year. Right. And it's just one, it's one of those things. I know I got to quit. I'm getting there. But every time I have to go buy a pack of cigarettes or something, I feel like I'm walking around with like the scarlet letter on me. I'm just like, you know, I don't want anybody else in the <laughs> store. I don't want anybody looking at me. So I get why as a TV producer, you wouldn't put it on TV. But right. yeah, there's there's a whole string of the story about him getting lung cancer from smoking five packs a day. That you can't, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you know, part of the reason he does that is because he's tricked multiple you know, lords of hell into having his soul once he dies. So he does it on purpose, you know, it's it just a mess with them. And it's yeah. like, amazing. It it really is. I just love that kind of brash characterization. It's, it's just a lot of fun when they call it guile, nothing but guile. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, matter of fact, I was trying to figure out a way last year to actually get a fake degree in demonology without spending a billion dollars. So I can just tell everybody like, oh yeah, you know, whatever is my career, but you know, demonology is really my passion. Nice. Yeah. Of course I couldn't find a place and nobody's going to let me start a school. <laughs> um, so tell me a little bit about, I mean, what were some of the challenges? This is your first licensed work. I mean, I realize you knew the guy or one of the guys who worked on the book. What were some of the challenges in taking somebody else's work and actualizing it into a movie? That whole process was actually pretty streamlined. Uh, James uh, was really easy to work with, and I think he and I worked really well together. Um, there were there were, you know a couple times we butted heads, but I think that that's perfectly normal, and 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 that happens. Um, but I think it was it was pretty graceful overall in terms of dealing with the licensing and stuff like that. But I think a lot of that goes to the fact that you know James and I are not you know, big wigs in this We're we're kind of, you know, at the amateur level still. So we just wanted to make a good movie together. Uh, so that was the drive and that was the focus. Um, honestly, the, the biggest challenges were, were kind of on set logistics day to day. Uh, just, just getting the actors there and, and getting everything done. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Cause like you said, you are, you're doing an indie film based on an indie comic and you're in a place where there's a lot of artistic and creative people, but you're not in, you know, Hollywood or uh, Vancouver. So right. how hard is it to pull off a production uh, in the Pacific Northwest? It's it's a little tricky. I, I think it's absolutely doable because there is a lot of what you will find a lot of up here in the Pacific Northwest is people that are passionate about this stuff. Um, and that doesn't always necessarily translate to people that are passionate enough about it, uh, to shake up their lives and move to Los Angeles. Um, so, so I, I think essentially you end up with people that want to do this, but they don't want to want to do it enough to move to LA or Vancouver, British Columbia or Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, it's kind of like if, if, you know, back in the 1940s or fifties, you had, you knew a guy that said he really just wanted to build cars and that's all he ever wanted to do, but he refused to move to Detroit. Um, it's like, well, I mean, how much do you really want to build cars if you won't move to Detroit? So it's like, how much do you really want to make movies if you won't go to Los Angeles? Um, yeah, but I've been to Los Angeles. I understand not wanting to go there. <laughs> totally. And I think, and I think what a lot of us, uh, feel like is that we love it up here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, culturally, uh, weather wise. And we think that there's a way to make it viable up here to, to have, kind of a small indie film industry that that can work for us and and we have a couple people that have since relocated to los angeles uh for example emma marshall who did the tiger devil's makeup in penny palabras uh she's down in los angeles and she's going down there for makeup school um so i mean she you know she really wants to work in movies doing doing special effects makeup and I, that's awesome and she did a great job on the tiger devil's makeup um, you know, I was just thinking while you're saying that and it kind of, yeah, I was listening to what you're saying, but I was also thinking, you know, if I were like up there and I wanted to get into filmmaking, I'd probably try to like get a work visa into Vancouver rather than yeah, it's, for it's, LA. it's tempting. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've, I've thought about it a lot of times and every once in a while I'll look, um, at, at jobs <laughs> north, just north of the border. Uh, I think it's about a three hour drive from where I'm at to get to Vancouver. Um, and also there are other current circumstances and kind of the political climate of our nation right now that have uh, caused me to look at 
exit routes. And uh, my wife, uh, her her employment would not allow her to move north of the border. So uh, for the time being, we're here. So it's kind of about trying to figure out a way to make it work here. Sure. Well, you know, uh, a friend of mine, out, she just moved to New York, but she was in Salt Lake City. And there was actually a booming indie film stage production indie comic scene in Salt Lake City that I would have never have suspected. That's fascinating. I would never have picked Salt Lake City as a place for that. Yeah, and the more I look around, the more I see that semi-urban areas, I mean, you know, capital cities and that sort of thing, you know, Sacramento right. in the center here of California, there are more creative energies flowing and producing and creating right now than I think probably ever in history. I would say that you're probably right on that. Yeah, and, and there's there's things, you know, there's dynamics at work. Like I, Jerry Seinfeld said the other day that his generation was the first generation where you had a childhood. It used to just be you grew up, but you worked the farm, and then you were an adult, and you got married, and you stayed on the farm, or you bought the piece of land next door. His generation had a childhood. Now, this current generation, ours and down, or mine and down, suddenly there's a career path where you can start a blog and write about the stuff you're interested in, and actually some people can make a living doing it. Right. We, we've got this, I, I, right now... You can't go and uh, you know claim a piece of land and search for gold, but there's all sorts of other things you can do, and no way for people to stop you except for yourself. It's kind of exciting in a way, but like you're saying, it does create a lot of you know uh, signal to noise uh, depression. Right, and I think I think what it is is, and I love I love that Seinfeld thing. Um, that, that you're saying that he said that's that's I've never even thought of it that way, but it makes a lot of sense that that generation, you know, the baby boom generation was probably the first generation that had what we think of as a childhood, and that's that's kind of amazing. Um, but I remember thinking that uh, like Michael Jackson or uh, you know Madonna, these these mega pop stars of the '80s, I think that whole concept of having these superstars that are bigger than anything else in the world i think that that day has come and gone because everything is getting so spread out interests are getting uh separated into these knit these niches where you know nobody is ever going to really be into a, a guy like michael jackson again for his music because there's so many genres now and it's all bifurcated so much um and, and I think maybe filmmaking is the same way. There's still huge movies, uh, but eventually it seems like people are going to get bored with it. Oh, and, yeah. Eventually, look, Solo just proved that. Eventually, fatigue is going to set in on the day of the superhero and the day of the mega franchise is going to have to come to an end. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's and that's one of the good things is that there are there is all this material out there. So. You might not ever see, and it's, I think it's actually probably pretty silly to see the, to say that you're never going to see blockbuster movies again because we're still seeing huge movies. Yeah. Um, you know, The Last Jedi and Infinity War and uh, Black Panther were all, like, ridiculous and, and crushed almost everything that had come before. Uh, so they do keep getting bigger and bigger. But, but the B stuff is what's kind of not working as well anymore. And, and maybe that's where... Instead of there being one or two sources that fill the void, there's now a hundred or, or two hundred sources to fill the void. 
Well, I saw a thing recently where some chain of theaters is going to experiment with a phone-shaped uh, screen. So what would you call that? Vertical? Horizontal? No, vertical. Yeah, verticals. Yeah, vertical. Yeah, vertical screens. And that just shows that the, um, you know, it's it's a thing. It's We're going to have to change everything to adapt to the that. way everybody wants media served. I hate that. I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like it at all. You know, vertical, look, I don't like I don't like vertical screens, man. It makes me it makes. Well, me I was gonna say because most people I know watch shit on their phone sideways at that point, but you know, who am I? <laughs> right, right. Even yeah, no, that's, at a certain point, I have to consider like maybe I just don't like it because I'm old and I'm stuck in the old way of doing things, and if vertical is the way that it's gonna go, like, I mean. I can resist it all I want, but in the end, I'm just an old guy. Oh yeah, that's that's what I say about like comic books now. I'm like, look, they just I'm not their market anymore, so I'm not yeah. even gonna, I'm not even going to try. You know, it's like a friend and I were talking the other day, and he I think it was Cardi B or something like that. He's like, I don't even know who that is. I said, look, I'm not quite old enough to be to the age where I I try to pretend that it's hip for me not to know who the current acts are. <laughs> I'm not quite there yet, I said. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to follow you down this path on this one. But I know that there's shit all the time where I'll hear names and be like, I don't know who the fuck that is. <laughs> you know? Dude, yeah. I, I didn't know who Cardi B was until a couple weeks ago. And a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago, whatever. And everyone's like, Cardi B, Cardi B. And I'm like, what the fuck is a Cardi B? Mm-hmm. I thought know, it was so a code at up. first. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like it's a, it's a kind of sweater, right? Kurt yeah. Cobain, Cardi B when he, when he played for Nirvana, right? I mean, Pretty sure he killed himself in one. Oh, but so I looked up Cardi B and I was like, oh, it's a it's a pop star. OK, like this isn't the pop star. Like I was saying with Michael Jackson or Madonna, this isn't the pop star you had in the 80s, because even if you were an old guy like us in the 80s, you still knew who Michael Jackson was. You still knew who Madonna was. Yeah, that's an interesting point that everything is niche down to that level. But, you know, it also I'm going to get political, which I don't do here very often. Is that just more tribalism? Are we just surrounding ourselves with the, only the shit I like or my friends like, and I'm not going to poke my head out of the hole for anything else? It's fascinating, but it's entirely possible. Yeah. I hadn't considered it from that perspective, but it, it could be tribalism. And it, it does seem to be kind of a, a frustrating thing that's that's happening to civilization as, as we increase our numbers or as we go on or whatever it is. But we are uh, splintering into tribes, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and more and more, not dangerously, vociferously. I mean, it's almost bordering on you know threats of you know, threats and provocations of actual physical harm. Now, uh, the the political side of it, not necessarily the cultural yet, but yeah, people are just not communicating with other people very much. No, and I think more and more I'm reading about kind of how a lot of people are expressing that social media seems to be uh, something that's facilitating this uh, breakdown. And I, I think it might, I think it might, there might be something to that because I can have a conversation with someone that I disagree with on a fundamental level about the na- the, about the direction that our country should take and, and what I believe the, the, the role of government is in, in, in our civilization and we can have a discussion about it and and disagree, but yet if we're on Facebook having that same discussion, you know, we're we're practically calling for civil war and and wanting to you know threatening to beat each other up over it and just losing our fucking minds. But if we sit down next to each other face to face and have a conversation, 
everything's fine and we agree to disagree. Yeah. I don't know. It's weird. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I should well, what's, what's that one? What's that one off-quoted rule that the longer a conversation goes, uh, the closer you get to somebody calling somebody else Hitler? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, I can't remember the name of the rule now. And there was a time that you didn't compare people to Hitler, and and you know, just fucking Hitler was evil. You don't you don't go throwing the Hitler around real casually. And now everybody accuses the other guy's you know head guy of being Hitler. Literally Hitler. Literally Hitler. Yeah totalitarianism uh you know they'll throw around words like um tyrant mm-hmm. you know fascist is another one i mean oh you like justin bieber you're literally hitler you are literally hitler that's with a capital l <laughs> and a capital h and a capital h well that's the way i spell it i write almost everything in lowercase letters now but i'm lazy <laughs> it's just laziness on my part Ken, I'm going to do this real quick. Um, guys, if you want to check out on Amazon Prime, either Dead Drift, you go to tinyurl.com slash deaddrift. To see the movie Penny Plobbers, you go to tinyurl.com slash movie. Or if you just want to maybe check out the prequel shorts for it, tinyurl.com slash pennymovie. Uh, why don't you tell us a little more about some of the characters in Penny Plobbers? Okay, so we've got, we've got Penny, of course, who's the main character, played by Dina Ingley. Uh, amazing actor. Um, she, I think she kind of, her, her presence and her performance really, really owns the role and, and she carries the movie kind of on her back. I don't think it would work without her. Um, so Penny is this young girl who has, uh, a connection with the spiritual world as it were. Uh, she starts messing around with stuff, gets in a little too deep, uh, starts getting haunted by these spirits. Uh, and then she starts to think there might be a connection with her dad, so she tries to reconnect with her dad. Uh, her mom is a character in the story as well. Uh, her mom is played by Emily Rommel Shimkus, who is also a fantastic actor. Um, people might know her from Journey Quest, where she plays Ren the Bard. Um, then we've got the straw man, Bill Reed Jr., who is one of the antagonists in the movie. He's constantly hassling Penny, keeping her awake with his with his threats. And then he kind of starts threatening her family uh, and her friends. So she's she's worried that he's going to hurt her mother. Uh, Penny's worried that he's going to hurt her friends. Um, and then we've got Stephen, who is uh, a good friend of Penny's, who runs in her circle of friends at school. He's kind of a little more interested in her than she is in him. Um, we've got the librarian, and the librarian is kind of a mentor figure to Penny. Penny wants to learn more about why it is that she can see ghosts and why it is that she's in tune with this spiritual world because no one else seems to be. So she goes to the library, and in the librarian, she finds kind of a kindred spirit. This is a person who she can talk to who actually understands what she's going through. So she's, she recommends kind of a course of study and books that she should look into that will help her understand and expand her education as these things go. Um, then we encounter a, uh, a tiger devil. At a certain point, who is this very sort of evil, uh, malicious character uh, played by Alyssa Kay, who was actually in uh, Dead Drift as well. She was Hannah, the uh, the hologram. And I thought I was like, you know, I wonder what uh, I wonder if Alyssa could play a villain because, you know, spoiler alert. But if you watched Dead Drift to the end, uh, Hannah kind of takes a bit of a turn right the last couple minutes. And I was like, you know, I was like, I bet Alyssa could play an evil character really well. And she absolutely kicks ass as the Tiger Devil. And then 
We've got Ben Leitawa who plays uh, Penny's father, and he's phenomenal. And I think that's probably about it. There's, I mean, I'm sure there's a couple more that I forgot. But oh, there, there's always going to be a couple more. There's always more people hanging around doing something. Yeah, totally. Now, when you filmed this, did you use any of the same people? I mean, obviously, you already said you used the actress who played Hannah. But how many people from Dead Drift did you carry over into this? Any of your uh, any of your crew at all? No, no crew. And see, that's the thing about Dead Drift is Dead Drift was shot on these sets and garages where there was, like, times where when we were shooting Dead Drift, I was running camera and Maddie was acting and that was it. And then other times we had other people there. Uh, Jeremy Niddle, for example, uh, did a lot of the audio on Dead Drift, and he helped out a lot on Penny Palabras as well. Um, Jesse Williams, who played the clones in Dead Drift, has a, has a small cameo in Penny Palabras. Uh, but other than the three of them, that was pretty much it. It was kind of a kind of a new start and a fresh crew for Penny. I'm always interested in seeing who, who people carry over as they do different projects. And with some people, it's, hey, you know, it's a new movie, a new, new whole thing, all new people. And other people, you'll just see the same, like, eight faces show up everywhere. Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know if I've told you, but since I uh, lost my job back at the end of May, I have been on a, well, first off, I've been at a, a particular low point in my life. I almost had Uber bring me McDonald's the other day. I was having such a down day. Damn, dude, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, well, you know, it's just, it's, shit happens. It just, for me, I was like actually sitting there. I'm like, this is rock bottom. This is where other people commit suicide. I just have somebody else bring me sugar, salt, and fat. That, that's where my life is. But I've been watching a lot of low and no budget films on Amazon Prime. Trying to find the lowest budget ones that are still watchable that I can. Okay. So, Ken, first off, I want to say, if you have time in the future, I would like to throw one of these movies at you and then have you and I come back and do an episode of the show where we do a good, bad, and ugly review of it. Sounds good. I'm down. But I found these these guys the other day that are doing films or had done some films under Caesar and Autos. It's almost like an Abbott and Costello. Okay. And in one, they go do like a full hour and 20-minute Sleepaway Camp style movie. The original actress from Sleepaway Camp was in the movie. Nice. But the follow-up was they go to work for Dracula, not the Dracula, but his brother Stephen, Stephen Dracula. <laughs> nice. And it, it was all shot with green screen, and then everybody was composited back into scenes later. So they could shrink each each character into the scene and put them further in the background or closer up. And then they fuzzed all the scenery so it looked like the old soft-focus 1930 camera work. Right. I am always amazed by the stuff people will do to shoot low budget and still have it look good. It's like all of a sudden by having their hands tied together, they actually have their hands untied because they have to get more creative with everything they do. Oh, absolutely. Now you as a filmmaker, I don't know if there's anything particular you could point at, but what are, what are some tips or tricks or thoughts or things that you've had to overcome because of your shooting budgets? Oh my goodness. Well, I think I think Dead Drift was a was kind of a really good example of it. We had very limited space for our sets. Um you know, like traditionally you just you'd build a bunch of different sets in a warehouse and then you'd you'd film everything on all of them, but with Dead Drift, essentially I had to build a set, shoot everything on that set that that was on that set from episode 1 through episode 16. If it was on that set, we had to do it. And then we would tear that set down 
and then we would build the next set, and then we would film everything that was on that set, and and so on and so forth, and we did that over and over again. Um, so that's that's kind of one of the biggest examples of of that I think for for Dead Drift. Um, and and there were there were other challenges as well, like with with filming the ship models in Dead Drift. We didn't have. I mean, gosh, I was the I was the VFX guy on Dead Drift. That's why the effects suck so bad. Um, oh, but they I had, weren't they weren't that bad. <laughs> well, give yourself you. give yourself a little credit there. I mean, they fit the your your effects shots all fit with everything else you were doing. Nothing looked out of place. Well, that's good because yeah. the, uh, the ship models were actually fantastic, and they were created by an artist here. Uh, locally, and I and I bought them from him, uh, but I still had the composite in the the space backgrounds and and stuff like that, uh, and I think uh, that's kind of where I ended up having to teach myself how to do rotoscoping in in After Effects, and I absolutely detest and despise that that work. I don't like doing it at all. And my wife always says, "Well, why don't you get an intern to do it?" And I was like, "Look, this work is literally torture. I don't see how I could actually justify." trying to get someone else to do it for free there's no way uh so i had to do it and, and she's like well you could pay someone and i was like there's no way i could afford to pay someone to do this drudgery because like i wouldn't do this for 50 dollars an hour because it's awful yeah it's, it's quite literally you either do it for free or a fortune there is no in between right exactly and i was like there's no way i'm i'm gonna ask anyone to do this for me for free because it is torture yeah that's um that's kind of funny it is for people who haven't tried to do creative things, I'm never going to call uh, podcasting hard work, but it can be stressful at times. You know, they're, my dogs are barking in the background. Please forgive them. Um, <laughs> but it can be stressful at times because I got to, you know, figure out a hook and a way to get people to listen and stay interested and a guest that won't bore me. And you know what? There are times where I'm just like, fuck, I have no idea, <laughs> no idea where to go. <laughs> right. Um, but then other, you know, then I'll just, you kind of have to just double down. What are, are there points where you found yourself kind of like ready to throw in the towel on either dead drift or any other project you've worked on? Man, you know, I, I don't think so, but that's kind of a weird thing for me. You know, you were talking earlier about you were about to order McDonald's via Uber eats. And that was, that was a really dark point in your life. <laughs> And I, and I completely empathize with you. And I, I also, you know, I, I do struggle with, uh, mental health issues and, and depression specifically. And I know a lot of us do and it gets hard and, and you get, and you get those days where, uh, it's dark and maybe you don't want to get out of bed or, or you don't want to leave the house. Um, and that, that shit is tough. You know, it's, it's hard to deal with. Um, but for some reason, I don't know why I, I have this weird streak where I can't abandon one of these projects once I've started it. It's it's it, especially on something like Dead Drift or Penny Palabras because I feel like once I've pulled in, you know, between uh, ten to say Dead Drift, the total crew of Dead Drift was like you know ten people at most, but on Penny Palabras we had forty to fifty people working on it. Um, and there was a time in editing where I was like, I, I hate this. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, but I can't. I can't stop because all those people, basically, I, I can't let all of them down. Like, I owe it to them for donating their time to help me bring this project to life. I owe it to them to at least finish the fucking movie. Um, 
so yeah that's that's i guess like i can see why people want to quit uh, and maybe i want to quit but i don't think i'll let myself no i think that's a perfectly fair answer um I don't know if you've noticed, but my my sometimes my interview style is I ask a question and I just shut up till I feel like you're done talking. That's no, I think you're actually doing like a really good job of like, <laughs> of sensing the lulls in the dialogue and jumping in. I always there's always a couple where I feel like maybe I held that just a little bit too long, but I'm I'm usually pretty good at picking it out. It makes my wife crazy if she's ever in the room while I'm doing it. <laughs> and she knows what's going on. She's like looking at me like like her hands out like fuck somebody say something. I'm just like, No, not yet. Right, not no, and yet. it's and that's because there's there's times where sometimes I like I'll stop and I'll be waiting for you and then it almost felt like it went on too long and I'm like there's this inclination to like start talking again because we have this uh nature of horror is a vacuum, right? So so oh, we, yeah. we want to just jump in there and start again, but I'm like, No, I'm like, No, I'm gonna wait for you because I know that you got this and I know that you're going to jump in. So yeah. like I said, you said that maybe there's not a lot of creative creativity to podcasting. I don't know that I agree with that, but I think there's definitely a talent uh, for conducting interviews and talent to me. Talent is a skill that is honed uh, through practice and time. So I think that you definitely have gotten very good at this and uh, you know when it's time to talk and when well, it's thank time. you. Thank you. I do appreciate that. Actually, what I was trying to say, and I kind of got lost off in the weeds, was that I don't consider podcasting hard work or not right. a lot of it's hard work. I do find it stressful. I do find people who don't have friends who are in filmmaking or television or, or any of those fields that are similar don't think of creating art, visual arts or performance arts as work at all. And, uh, you know, I see the other side. I see guys working 10-hour days under fucking 180-degree lights, things like that. And a, a lot of it, a lot of your work goes unappreciated is where I was headed with that. And me, personally, I think I'd hit the point where I was like, you know what? Fuck all you guys. <laughs> you don't know what I'm going through for you. The thing is, man, I think there's different there's different roles in making a movie. And we look at the more creative roles and we tend to think of them as being less like work and more like play. Mm-hmm. But that's just the way we think. I think we look at actors and we think that's not work. They're just playing pretend. You know, we look at the director and we're like, he's not working. He's just telling people what to do. That's not work. Uh, but I guarantee you on a set, you've got electricians, you've got set builders, you've got camera operators uh, and lighting guys. And these motherfuckers work their asses off. Makeup artists. um, like line producers and stuff like that. There's a lot of like non-creative, like actually just really hard work that goes into making a movie. It's only a few lucky people that get to like, just pretend to be someone else or say, well, Hey, point the camera over there. And that's what you got to do. Know, but I'm, I'm going to disagree with you a little bit. Cause Ken cry for me when I tell you to <laughs> laugh when I tell you to there, you gotta be able to dig into your emotions and do some shit to pull out acting. Not only that, a director has to be able to, draw that out of the other person that has to be emotionally taxing absolutely so i mean i guess what i was trying to say is not that i feel like actors don't work or directors don't yeah. work but i feel like from a layman's uh position it can seem like actors and directors are just having fun i believe that they're working as well um and absolutely what actors can do uh what actors have to do can be absolutely taxing because they I, and i saw it on penny palabras because it deals with a lot of really dark family stuff and i saw some of these actors you know diving into these these dark parts of themselves 
to to get this this material, these emotions. And uh, you know, sometimes they were exhausted at the end of the day from from going to these places. And I mean, I was always exhausted at the end of the day because you know this is a micro budget indie film, so the director's not just the director; he's also got ten other roles, and and so did everyone else. So yeah, I mean, we all we all worked hard. Uh, to, to bring Penny Palabras to life. But I can see how from an outsider's perspective, it can seem like actors and directors have it easy. Yeah. And I, I it has taken me a while and I've had to meet a lot of people and talk to a lot of people um, and, and correct my own biases or viewpoints that I carried into it. There's a lot more work in there than I ever assumed. You know, yeah, you're right. Everybody's kind of go, oh, yeah, they're playing make believe, but you know, go ahead, dig into your emotions. Like, I'm not a guy who laughs out loud or cries out loud. I just, I don't. I've actually had comedians put up my picture on Twitter, like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy kind of thing. <laughs> wow. And, oh, yeah, it's happened twice. And because, uh, you know, I figure if a motherfucker sees me smiling, they know they got me. And no motherfuckers <laughs> got me. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, even, like, you know, uh, funerals. I might go, like, stand in the corner for a second, shed a tear, and then I get my shit together and come back out because I, I figure I don't need to drag everybody else down even further, you know, so I just I keep all that shit inside. I am afraid to get in touch with my emotions. That's why I'm kind of in awe of acting. Are you, uh, are you German or British? Uh, I'm French native, and uh, but you got to understand, like, my French family was in Canada in the 1680s. Right. So, I mean, my, my family has mixed up long American history for, you know, three, four hundred years already. Right. So you're American. Yeah, I'm, I'm through and through American. My last name's French, but only barely still. And, you know, my mom's family's Danish and a couple other things. Right. So, yeah, I it's mean, just because, you know, people have these stereotypes and who knows how much of them are just complete uh, nonsense. So I don't I certainly don't want to sound like. I'm trying to be a racist, but, you know, there yeah. are these stereotypes. Like, I hear that uh, Norwegians are particularly obsessive about making sure that their measurements and, and their engineering projects or their woodcutting projects are just, like, so precise. They're just, like, ridiculous about it. Yes. So they say, hey, why are you so, why are you being so Norwegian about this? Um, or, like, Germans, for example, uh, and this is, like, this is not just my observation, but this is an observation that's been collected through history is that, uh, Germans won't complain if they're feeling uh, a physical uh, ailment, like if they have pain or something. They won't mention it to anyone else because they don't want to be a burden to anyone else. There, okay, so there was a, there was a thing, and I, I got to catch you off because I don't remember if it was the Swedes or the Danes or whoever. But um, Anthony Bourdain, I just you know, just before he committed suicide, I started watching his show like on loop, and I'd never watched him before. My wife had, but he was in one country where the people there, like, as a reminder to each other, they kind of went, eh, it was okay. You know, it was one of the, um, one of those far northern European countries. Right. You know, it was okay, it was okay. And then the Danish have a thing where you don't draw attention to yourself. Right. Like, if you're if you're doing something big, that's kind of, like, socially frowned on. And I know you're headed with the British one, is the stiff upper lip. You don't, you don't wince, somebody can cut your pecker off, and you're just going to stand there and take it. Right, you don't acknowledge what yeah. you're going through. You you just uh, you you play it off like everything is cool. Yeah. And I was gonna say like my so for example my wife has uh, a lot of German heritage. She's very German. 
Uh, I mean, she's American, but she's, you know, very German ancestry. And she like, she could be practically dying. Like her leg could have been bitten off. And she's like, I don't really need to go to the doctor yet. Let's just wait a couple of days and see, and see what happens. Yeah, and I'm, yeah. I'm like, with me, I'm like, if I feel a, a tiny pain in my finger, I'm like, I need to go to the fucking ER. You yeah. know, I'm like, I have no pride about that. I'm like, I just want the pain to go away. Whereas like, she'll just deal with it. And I'm like, I'm kind of like envious, but I'm also impressed. And you know, like I said, it's all racial stereotype bullshit. So none of it's probably real. Well, I'm sure there's some elements to it in in the like larger, in the larger sense. Like the English were bad cooks, so the French refer to them as roast beefs. <laughs> you know, there's something underlying it somewhere. But yeah, there is probably an ugly kernel of racism at the very core of it. You know, um, Ken, what are you guys working on these days? What's coming up? What are you planning on? What are you doing? What, what's what's going on in your future, sir? Uh, the team, a lot of the behind-the-scenes team uh, from Penny Palabras, which was uh, myself and uh, Travis Blood, who is the director of photography on Penny Palabras and the camera operator. Uh, Sean Driscoll, who was kind of a, an assistant director, also a co-writer of the scripts and a producer as well. The three of us and also Sabrina Rose, who helped out a lot on Penny Palabras. Uh, the four of us are moving forward with something called Roscoe the Junkyard Cat which is going to be kind of a raunchy, ridiculous, silly, absurdist comedy show about a cat who lives in a junkyard, uh, and the cat is going to be a puppet. So there's going to be some puppet characters and some live-action characters. Um, and basically, Roscoe the Junkyard Cat hates his life in the junkyard, and he just wants to get out of the junkyard. Uh, kind of the, the premise or the hook of the show is that every time he gets out of the junkyard, he dies. And he wakes up the next morning back in the junkyard. So what we've been telling people is that Roscoe's got nine lives to figure out how to get out of the junkyard. And that's the premise behind it. Um, and we've been buying puppets and we've been casting our actors. Um, we're actually kind of waiting back on a, a relatively well-known puppet manufacturing company about whether or not we can use their puppets in our show. Uh, so we might have to replace a couple of puppets if they say no. I'm hoping they don't say no, but they might. That is always such a weird thing to me, the licensing and stuff like that. I feel like if I buy a puppet, I should be able to do whatever I want with it. But I, I know you can't do that. You can't, you know. Right. But, yeah, I agree with you. But, uh, you know, they these these puppets say on them on their little tags that clearly all rights reserved. So yeah. that means we cannot simply turn them into characters for our show. We have to get permission. Yeah, I got some people down here in Tracy, California, who used to do, like, Banana Splits characters and stuff like that. Maybe if I reached out to them, they could tell me where other uh, no-rights puppets come from. Never yeah, watched. and, well, that's, I mean, that's one of our dilemmas is that the puppets we're getting through this company are totally affordable for what we're doing. Yeah. And that's kind of the appeal. Uh, but then you run into the rights issue. Whereas you can go out and get a custom puppet made where you own all the rights to it once once it's finished and you bought it, but you're looking at, you know, five to ten times the price. Yeah, well, exactly. Well, that's that's the dilemma with just about everything. Now, right. now as as an aside, because I am a big-time wrestling fan, you know, back in the olden days, say, like, a wrestler lost a match and had to leave the area, you know what they'd do? They'd put on a mask and come back under a different name. Now, what if we get your puppet's little luchador masks? Could they work then? <laughs> That's that's interesting because I've also read about like remixes, like musical remixes and stuff like that, and and fair use or or copyright rule, and that if you change the original by ten percent or more, uh, then you are you're good to go. 
So we were we're going to actually look into that and say if we change this puppet by 10% or more, are we then okay? Yeah, get a lawyer to look into that for you. I'm going to sure. just uh, yeah, I'm just going to I don't know a lot, but you know, yeah. let me just say let's be I safe. definitely don't want to dump a bunch of money into this only to find out that uh, you know, we're in a legal no-go zone. Yeah, this would be like when I tried to make a sequel to The Wrath of Khan, you know, it's it just all went bad. <laughs> Well, Ken, I notice we are out of time. I'm sure you're used to hearing your therapist say that pretty often. Hey, oh. Yeah. Well, no, no, no. I was just, I don't think there's anything wrong with therapy. What do you got against therapists? <laughs> I don't have anything against therapists. I've actually been, I should probably go, I should probably go get some therapy, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, I hear it's good for everybody. I went to one once, but he committed suicide a couple weeks later. Uh-huh. So I've been a little, been a little Rodney Dangerfield ever since. Yeah. So yeah. my therapy is generally at the bottom of a bottle of Jameson. That's- yeah, I don't drink a lot of Jameson. I find Irish whiskey to be a little too sweet for me. I'm a bourbon guy. Okay. I, I like the bourbons. But, you know, I also discovered that Tennessee whiskey is a little too harsh for me. So I've, I've also discovered as I've aged, I've gotten very particular about how I get drunk. No, I, I hear you 100%. I'm the same way. Yeah. Because, like, I've got a pretty extensive liquor cabinet. Well, it's, it's starting to empty out now that I've been unemployed for a few weeks. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But, you know, I, I've I've usually got a pretty good handle on just different things around the house because you never know when you might entertain or whatever. You know, people yeah, show absolutely. up for a thing and I want to be able to like, hey, you know, we can do margaritas, whiskey sours, blah, blah, blah. But um, I have noticed that as I've gotten older, I've gotten like I used to just say I like whiskey, but that's not true anymore. I, I don't really care for Tennessee whiskeys. I don't like scotch at all. But most bourbons are right within my wheelhouse. Okay. Yeah. And I don't mind Jameson, but I do like to mix it with like a ginger beer or uh, soda water or something to kind of cut the sweetness of it. Well, I think I, I, I generally drink my drink my Jameson with ginger ale, uh, which I think is awesome. I just love the crispness of it and kind of the clarity. I think I used to be, you know, in my 20s, I was big into my late 20s. I was big into to, uh, Captain, Captain Morgan with uh, with Coke. Um, but it was like, I think as we age, our palate changes and we get less, uh, inclined to drink super sweet stuff. One day I drank a captain and Coke and it was just, it just tasted like syrup to me and it was disgusting. And I, I never looked back. I switched to Jameson and it was just so much more delicious, I guess. I don't know. It was just more, more crisp. And, and like you're saying, Jameson is a little, little too sweet for you. And I think, uh, as we age, our taste buds change to the point where hyper sweet stuff gets less appealing as we age. That was, I read a thing once. It's like the first signs that you're getting old is that you suddenly consider golf to be a sport. <laughs> you can hurt yourself while you're asleep at night yeah. and, and you say things like, Oh, I can't eat that. It's way too sweet. Right. Totally. Yeah. And I was like, all those things are like, shit, that happened to me at like 32. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Man, I could hurt myself when I was sleeping when I was a teenager. I don't know. It's like, oh, what happened to my neck? Yeah. Well, that's, I, I think I used to like do sleep acrobatics as a teenager. I'd, I'd wake up. But, you know, growing is such a weird thing. You wake up and your fucking knees are killing you. And then you find out you're like two inches taller after a month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have that problem, but I'm oh, sure. You know, my dad, my dad actually grew seven inches his senior year of high school. Jesus, that sounds terrible. And, and his parents were just, you know, working class Okies in California. And I'm sure trying to buy a new pair of jeans every week for a kid was probably a bit of a financial burden. Yeah, absolutely. But he went from he went from 5'4 to 5'11 his, his high school year, senior high school year. Um, 
So much so, his his nickname was Dinky when he was a kid, because he was little. Right. And, you know, his dad was, you know, we don't know if he was like eighth, quarter, or half, but he had quite a bit of uh, some kind of tribal blood out of Oklahoma. Uh-huh. And he would look like just like a short, fat Native man. You know, black hair, reddish skin, kind of short, kind of fat. Right. And then, you know, my my dad looked like him, and then one day he grew seven inches. The, yeah. photo, the photographs are weird. He's like, you see them look alike, and then all of a sudden they don't. It's yeah, I was, I was pretty much the shortest kid in every grade from kindergarten uh, up through, you know, uh, every grade. And everyone kept telling me. In elementary school and middle school, well, eventually you're gonna you're gonna get a growth spurt and you're just gonna get tall and you're gonna get you're gonna be six six foot or six foot one like your grandpa and whatnot and then uh, you know it never happened and I finally finished growing at about five eight which is just uh, you know a little taller than my dad yeah. and a little taller than my mom and I'm like this is it guys this is all I got yeah. but you know during the Revolutionary War you would have been considered quite tall. You know, I hear that people yeah. people talk about how we've been getting taller, but then you look back to uh, Peter the Great, who was like six foot seven, and I'm like, you know, well, yeah, but that's a bunch of inbred freaks. <laughs> Good know. point. Yeah, you can't really you can't really look at them. He probably also had a Habsburg jaw. <laughs> hey, Ken, if people want to find out more about you or any of your upcoming or previous projects, where can they find you at? Man, uh, probably the best place to find me right now would be to uh, just. Look for me on Facebook or Twitter, uh, Kenzo FKC. Uh, either of those should be able to, to connect you with me on Twitter or Facebook, uh, where I'm pretty active on both of those. But I, I kind of much prefer that you just uh, go watch my movies, Dead Drift and Penny Palabras. Yeah, which you can find at tinyurl.com slash pennypmovie, tinyurl.com slash deaddrift. That isn't an Amazon associate link, so I don't know if maybe I'd make some money or not, but that's the easiest way we can get a simple to read uh url ts so check them out um ken i, I do want to ask you because i've noticed that it seems like penny looks like one thing but might feel like another who who what what sort of things could somebody be into do you think would also be into penny palabras man uh penny, penny's been really tricky to nail down but i would say that uh teenagers probably uh young adults uh maybe early 20s who are into like maybe Harry Potter or the Hunger Games or like the Divergent series, uh, anything that is essentially about a young character who finds themselves in a world that is weird and they have these special powers and they have to fight against overwhelming odds to to get some sense of normalcy in their life. So, yeah, that's that's probably it. It's a young adult kind of. Uh, in the in the vein of a Hunger Games or a Divergent or a Harry Potter, and that's yeah. And I'm, and I'm not trying to nail you down or make you pigeonhole yourself. I'm just trying to figure out kind of where where some interests may over overlap or overlie each other. You know? Yeah. No. Absolutely. Uh, try, nail, trying to nail down the genre uh, for the Penny film has been very tricky for us because you know the whole time we had been operating under the assumption that it was going to be horror, um, but now we're finding out that horror fans do not like it. Um, and it is more of kind of a, a slow burn of, of almost a character study uh, with some supernatural and, and terrifying, scary elements. But it's it's really probably more akin to like I would say it's it's like Donnie Darko meets the Hunger Games. Yeah, I think that's a good a good one. And, you know, it, it's not it's weird because you're right. It's not not a horror film, but it's not a horror film. 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it is kind of in there. And there's nothing wrong with kind of blending genres. I mean, how do you explain Highlander to somebody who's never seen it? <laughs> you know, one of my one of my all-time favorite movies. All right, everybody. That being said, thank you for listening to episode 187 of the Geekish Cast. We'll be back to talk to you soon. For Ken Carlson and all the cast and crew of Penny Palabras, so long, everybody. <laughs>